Oh, man. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them and turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning as we're continuing our, our sermon series on the kingdom of God. I'm called Thy Kingdom Come. If you think back through the uh, last several sermons that we had, the first one that we talked about was the, how the kingdom of God is the, is the long game, right? The kingdom of God is the long game. It's the, it's the, the slow and steady race. Um, there are great moments of gospel proclamation where people respond, but, but we're not always just waiting for the, for the big revival, right? A lot of building the kingdom of God is, is the day-to-day faithfulness. Amen? It's the, the waking up when your alarm clock goes off. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the getting up and, and making sure that the house is in order. It's the, it's the making sure that your, your children are being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that's something that's slow and tedious. Your kids are your kids for years, <laughs> right? They're your kids forever. It's all about the, the understanding that God has called us to faithfulness in great things. Yes, amen. But also faithfulness in the, in the, in the, what we would call small things. But really, honestly, the small things are, are glorious. Amen, church? The things that we would call small, those are the glorious day-to-day tasks of kingdom building. So that was our, our first sermon in this particular series. And then we talked about how, how to do that requires a, a certain passion for the kingdom of God. And we received that passion by God's grace through the gift of his, his Holy Spirit. And today, we're going to be leaning in and trying to understand more about exactly how God builds his kingdom and the gifts that he gives us as his people to do it. Now... These aren't new necessarily, the, the gifts of God, okay? So they, all of a sudden, spiritual gifts didn't just show up in, in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, all right? They've been in existence for a long time. And if you remember from our, our sermon series, whenever we were talking about King David, there was a season where Saul had the Spirit of God, and then God took his Spirit from Saul. And then there was the, the Spirit of God entered into, into David. And, and as you read through the book of Judges, you see the Spirit of God strengthening the judges for the task that they're called to. And you see, we see the Spirit of God rushing on, on, on Moses and on the priests and on different things like that. So in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God mostly in application of, of prophets and priests and kings and judges. But in the New Testament, in the time in which we live, the New Covenant... We see the Spirit of God poured out upon all of God's people. And this is what 1 Peter chapter 2 actually talks about. You can just make a note somewhere on your, on your little notebook or whatever to go back and take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. But it, it teaches us that we are, as God's church, a, a royal priesthood. So the priest and the kingliness that, that was experienced in the Old Testament is for every single believer today. Amen? And as a result, we receive... The gifts, the spiritual gifts of God, every single one of us. This is why the church after Jesus exploded. This is why the, the church of Jesus Christ is by far the world religion. Because Today it is. Because of the Holy Spirit's work being poured out upon every single believer, not just prophets, not just priests, not just kings, not just judges. Are y'all following with me here? And this is incredibly important stuff because, when, you know, if you were like me and you got saved or you became a Christian or you started getting serious about Jesus, maybe inside of a more charismatic church, 
whenever the word Holy Spirit is said, we get all these other categories. And so what I want to do today is hone in on what the, the gifts of the Spirit really are, why they matter for us. And we're going to do this over a couple of sermons. I don't intend to finish all of this today, okay? But I want to start honing in on, on what they really are, why they really matter, and what we as God's people should be doing with them when handling them properly. <coughs> Excuse me, I've also got a little head cold thing going on, so if I cough, I pray that you would forgive me. The New Testament makes it clear that the gifts are for all who believe in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 says this, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. John chapter 14, verse 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And remember, Jesus said that he had to go to the Father in order to do what? In order to send his Holy Spirit to his people. It was better that he went to the Father so that we, as his people, would receive the benefit of the Spirit. And that is how we, as his people, can do works that Jesus categorizes as greater works than his. That's amazing stuff. His words, not mine. So that means, church, you have gifts. If you believe in Jesus, if you, have, if you follow him, you have gifts from the power of the Holy Spirit. You have gifts to operate in certain callings that the Lord has given you to operate in. You have Holy Spirit-powered gifts. But remember, let me say this every time that I talk about the Holy Spirit, the primary gifts, what are the primary gifts of the Holy Spirit? It says it again and again and again and again in the Scriptures. It is repentance and conviction of sin. Amen? The Bible teaches us very clearly that one of the primary things that the, that, the, that the Holy Spirit does to us is it convicts us of our sin and it, it empowers us. It gives us the gift of repentance. Remember Ezekiel says, and I will put my spirit within them and I will cause them to what? To walk in my statutes. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Those are the primary gifts. But there are others, okay? There are other gifts that we must See and understand. And in the work of advancing the kingdom of God, God's works through his people, right? We are called as God's people to do this particular work. And the role of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry, building the kingdom of God. And one of the ways he does this is through his gifts. Look with me, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And we're going to read verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, circle that, underline it, highlight it, you know, whatever you got. I want you to pay attention to that verse, that little collection of words right there. The end of all things is at hand, because I'm going to talk to you a lot about that phrase. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Underline it, highlight it, whatever, circle that piece. For the sake of your prayers, that's important too, and we're going to come back to it later. Above all, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You can circle that, highlight it, whatever you want to do. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then he goes on and he starts listing some specific gifts. He doesn't list all of them, but he does list some. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. And then he gives more examples. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves 
as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear and heed your word. Father, we ask that you would give us the good gifts of faith and repentance today. We ask that you would help us to understand (coughs) and that you would teach us by your goodness and grace. Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) (coughs) Woo! Coughs are happening. I'm not dying. But if somebody finds a water bottle, I'd appreciate it. All right. I want to convince you today of two particular things, okay, two particular pieces. I want to, my goal today is to show you two pieces. First, that the kingdom of God is advanced today by the gifts of God, okay? That's the first thing that I want to show everybody. The kingdom of God is advanced today by God's gifts, which means if the kingdom of God is built, it's built by God. Isn't that good news? That means that you don't have to carry the pressure. Oh, my dear one. You brought me some water. Look how cute my kid is. Thank you, honey bunny. I appreciate that. Ooh, feel better already. Thank you. And it's a cute little teal bottle, too. Look at that. I don't even know. Is that teal? (coughs) We'll figure it out later. First, the kingdom of God is advanced today by the gifts of God. Second, this is the other thing that I want to convince you of today, that those gifts are worthless without love. Those gifts are worthless without real biblical love. Okay, two things. The kingdom of God is built by God through the gifts that he gives his church. Second, that those gifts are worthless, completely worthless, and you'll get nothing done if you don't have love. So let's start there. Look at verse seven. First Peter chapter four, verse seven. Look there with me. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, let's go back to that first phrase. I told you, pay attention to this first particular phrase because we're going to talk about it a little bit. The end of all things. This is important, but this phrase only happens one time in the Bible, and this is it. The end of all things. This is it. This is the moment where we see this. We don't see this anywhere else. We only see it here. And at first glance, because of our dispensationalism that we've kind of been brought up in, in our, in our religious culture that we've come out of, we think he's talking about the end of the world, right? The end of all things. Of course he's talking about the end of the world. Of course he is, right? No, he's not. This is not about the end of the world. I don't think so. You see, because... The end of the world, or the end of the world as we know it, maybe I should say it that way, is not the end of all things, it's the beginning of all things, right? You see, whenever the world concludes, it concludes with the creation and the rescue of the, of the new heavens and the new earth, right? The world is, is being reformed and blossoming into this new and beautiful thing. He's not, he's not talking about the end of the world here, he's talking about something else, so what else, what else could he be talking about? It's, it's not the end of the world. I think what's actually going on here is what's happening in their real time right then as he's writing. Because he says, he says, and he makes it clear, the end of all things is at hand. And that at hand phrase is used when it's now, when it's happening, when this is it, that's going down at this second, right? So what's happening that's the end of something that's right then? He's talking about the wrapping up of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant, okay? 
He's talking about this transitional phase that they're in right now between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's talking about this 40-year period where things are being made new again. Revelation chapter 21 verse 5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. Romans chapter 8 verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the old covenant. It's wrapping up and it's transitioning to the new covenant. And we see that as signs because Jesus is pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his people. The, The ceremonial cleansing laws are being lifted. You remember that? That's why that sheet fell out of heaven in that vision to Peter. And, Peter, and, and God says to Peter, Peter, rise, kill and eat. Animals that used to be considered unclean, now they're considered clean because the new covenant is beginning. The old covenant is wrapping up. Are you following with me here? He's not saying the end of the world is here because the world didn't end whenever he said it. Okay? He's talking about the end of the old covenant and then transition to the new covenant. And it's not instantaneous. There's about a 40-year period where that transition is happening. Are you all following with me here? Because the teaching is going out, the instruction is going out, and it kind of culminates in and around the time that Rome destroys and levels Jerusalem. That happened in around A.D. 70 or so. Okay? So that's that, that, that transitional period that's going down. It takes about 40 years to happen. In other words, the kingdom is here, and it's growing And because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, they've seen this exponential growth in the kingdom of God. Remember whenever they stood up and uh, uh, Peter began proclaiming that sermon in the early on in the the book of Acts, and there were 3,000 added to their number, and each day thousands were added to their number, each day more and more believers, because the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon you. But why is he talking about gifts? Because gifts, this is important, are signs of the kingdom of God. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, on your sons and, da- and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The spirit is poured out, and the sign of that being poured out is the gifts. Y'all see what I'm talking about here? I'm just trying to convince you that he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the beginning of the building of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the end of the old covenant, not the end of the world. Do y'all see that? Okay, cool. Great. I'm glad you see that. The spirit's poured out, and part of the signs of that will be gift will be the gifts. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. The distribution of the gifts is the sign that the kingdom has come, and they are a gift to God's people for kingdom building. All right? So God gives his people gifts, and we utilize those gifts to go out and build the kingdom of God. But then he says, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Why does he say that? Well, first off, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Remember that song? You teach that song to your kids? You teach that song to your kids if you haven't, because it's just forever and lodged in my brain until I'm dead. But it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? It's, it's once sober-minded and self-controlled. That's one of the gifts of the Spirit. So that's one of the things. But also, he says, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. What 
is he talking about? See, I love these moments in the Bible where you get to pull back and use other parts of the Bible to help you understand what's going on in that particular moment. For the sake of your prayers, what prayers? Are we just talking about general prayers? You know, get up and pray a few things. God, please heal great Aunt Marilda's thigh because it's tired and make no one's, you know, like, is that, is that the prayer? No, 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 no. Let me ask it this way. How did Jesus teach them to pray? How did Jesus teach them to pray? Thy kingdom come. You see? He's saying, use the gifts for the sake of your prayers in the building of the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? So God's kingdom's here. We're building it. The gifts are a huge part of its progress, and it's, it's moving throughout the world. I hope I've got you convinced of that. The gifts are here for the purpose of kingdom advance, and the kingdom is advancing. What a time to be alive, right? We're living in it now. We're building the kingdom of God now. We live in the new covenant day where the, the church, the Christian faith, is, one of the, is the most major religion in the world, and it's continued to explode in areas of the country. It's amazing, and we're seeing a revival of sorts in the West, in our country today. It's happening. People are waking up to the historical faith that has been lost for so long. It's happening now. The Lord will build his church, and he is, and he will do it through his people with the gifts. Not only with those specific ones, but with all of them. So, first point. The gifts are advancing the kingdom of God. Amen? We see that. But... And I'm going to spend a lot of time here. We're not even really going to get into the gifts too much today, okay? But I want to spend a lot of time here. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Go there. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, because sin covers, or excuse me, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin, which means the gifts, the Holy Spirit power without love is worthless. You're not going to accomplish the work of the kingdom. You're not going to do it. But when we say something like that, Oh, bro, that means we got to know exactly what we're talking about when we say the word love, right? Because if what you're telling me is if without love, Holy Spirit-powered gifts won't work, then I need to know exactly what love is. Where are we going to go for that? Y'all know? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Verses 1 through 3. You, we might have it here. I don't know. If you don't, just look it up on your phone, Bible, whatever you got. But listen to me carefully. This verse is read at weddings all the time, right? Isn't it? Y'all, as soon as I, if I speak in the tongues of men and symbols but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. You know, like that's read at weddings all the time. It is not about marriage, <laughs> okay? This verse is not about marriage. Although, sure, some of these moments are applicable to marriage, and I'm not saying you're sinning if it was read at your wedding, but that's not the context. The context of this is the way that Christians live their lives with one another. That's the context. The context of this passage, of what love means, is within the church. 
the way the church should live, not marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Above all, Peter says, and Paul expounds more for us here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, see, he's saying the same thing that Peter's saying. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Before we go too far, we have to understand that we mean the word love and not this mushy, gushy, emotionalism, feel thing that we define love as today. We mean biblical love. And we're in trouble on the context of love in our country today because we speak English. And English is not a great language. Just going to say that, okay? You want to know why? Because we've got one word, love. And we love our spouse. And we love our children. And we love tacos. (laughs) See? Now, we all know. That's why we're laughing. We all know that doesn't mean the same thing. Right? We all know that. But now you understand the need for us to define this well. Okay? We have to define this well. This is not mushy, nonsensical love that ignores truth. Today when we hear love, we, we just equate that word with um, acceptance. I, I love you for who you are. I accept you for who you are. And that's not that's not what real love is. Because what did Jesus say? If we love him, we'll do what? We will keep his commandments. Real biblical love, real love requires first and foremost a submission to God's truth. Amen? That's what real love is. Real love must be based on a standard of truth. And that standard of truth is the word of God. That's what real love is. And it's only within that submission to the word of God, to his truth, that we can love one another. What do I mean? Okay, let's think about this for just a second. If we don't have a body of truth, okay, then, then how do I know whenever someone has actually been sinned against and know whether or not I should minister to them in certain ways, right? If, if, and if you haven't been sinned against, then how can you demonstrate one of the most loving things that we could ever possibly do, which is to forgive someone for sinning against you, right? To, to forgive them, to cover their sins. If you just ignore it and wash it under the bridge and say, oh, no, that wasn't, oh, that wasn't what it is. That's not real forgiveness and that's not real love. Real love is like, when one was laying down his life for his friends, right? Greater love has no one than this, the Bible teaches, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Real love means sacrifice. Real love, for us to be able to forgive with real love, means that we must back it with real truth. Okay? And this is where the rubber meets the road in Christianity. This is it right here. Because it means 
that if you have sinned against someone, that you must confess it for what it is. Because you love them. And because that truth matters. And they forgive you in full awareness of exactly what you've done against them because they love you and because they love the Lord. Do you see what I'm talking about here? If you are without truth, you cannot love. You cannot. You must have real truth in order to love. It is only with submission to God's truth that we can forgive and cover others' sins when they sin against us. It is only in submission to God's truth that we can truly love others. If we don't have a standard of truth, then who's to say that we've ever sinned against anybody in the first place? And if no one has sinned against us, what's there to forgive and how do we love? But if we love with real love, that is a love based on the truth of the Bible, then we really love somebody. Words are under tons of assault today. This is why I'm being so careful with this. Uh, Imagine with me for a moment a, a, a child that has to go to the doctor, okay? And while they're at the doctor, they have, to, they have to get a shot. And the child, the moment they hear the word shot, lose their brains. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Have y'all, y'all ever interact? Y'all, some of y'all are like, I, that was me yesterday. You know, like, I know. Okay, listen. They just lose their minds. And like, it's time to get a shot. And the kid is like, no shot! Like, and they're losing their minds. They're flailing all over the place. They're like, it takes half the staff to hold them down. And then they get the shot. And then after the shot, the doctor comes in and the nurses, and they look at that kid and they were like, you were so brave. <laughs> you ever been in one of those situations? That's not true. They're hurting that kid, right? They're hurting him. They're not helping him. In, in that moment, if there's good godly parents involved, in that moment, the parents got to like get in the car and be like, okay, listen, that wasn't brave. <laughs> I'm trying to help you. That wasn't brave. Here's what bravery looks like. That's not brave. You see what I'm saying? It's the same thing in the world in which we live whenever we're dealing with, with love. We must love with truth. We must be brave with truth in truth. Otherwise, there's no bravery. We must love with truth in truth. Otherwise, there's no love. If, so that if and when we're sinned against, we can call the sin for what it really is and either choose to confront the sin out of love or cover the sin out of love. We have both options, right, church? We have both choices. Both choices are there. Otherwise, we're not truly being loving. We're being cowardly for refusing to deal with the sin at hand for what it truly is. We aren't willing to sacrifice our peace, our ease, our comfort, whatever. We just want it to be over. So as a result, we refuse to enter into conflict, right? We refuse to say what's true to the world around us because we're just, I don't want to enter into conflict. I don't want to, I don't want to, see, that's not love. That's not what the Bible calls love. That, in fact, is what the Bible would call hate, Okay? The Bible makes it very clear that in the Old Testament, those who refuse to discipline their children, they hate their children. That's what the Bible says, according to the standard of truth. We can understand the same principles apply here. 
If we're trying to love someone in absence of God's words, we are not loving them at all. We are, in fact, hating them. At best case, we're afraid. At worst case, we hate them. And we aren't willing to sacrifice our comfort because we just don't want to enter into conflict with people. That's not love. Real love requires submission to God's truth and it requires courage. The courage to call sin what it is. Amen? And to deal with it like the Bible tells us to deal with it. That's real love. And if we, as God's people, are called to love, that's what we're called to do. Not to be ashamed, not to be afraid, not to be cowardly, not to love our comfort over the eternal souls of others, but instead to put God's truth forth and let the Lord do what he's going to do with it. Now be wise, be shrewd, be you know, careful, be, don't be just be throwing your pearls before swine. All those principles are there. But we have to get back to love being directly connected to the body of truth of the scriptures. So real love holds to real truth. Amen? Okay. But there's more than that. Okay? Real love holds to real truth. But also, real love requires proximity. Requires closeness. Okay? Requires, requires a, a direct relationship. And this isn't hard. And a few verses later, we get an exact, clear, direct application of this in verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We understand right away what he's saying. Real love involves closeness to one another, right? Real love involves us knowing one another. But let's just walk through this real quick. First off, he says, be hospitable. That's the first application we can take from that right away. If you want to love people, if you want to love the people that you go to church with, rule number one, be hospitable. Amen? According to the body of the word of God, the body of truth, we love them according to truth and we should be hospitable. In other words, let's just bring it all the way down to ground level and invite folks from church over to dinner. That's easy. Boom. Base level. Have them over for dinner. Uh, Take them out to lunch. Be friendly. And the reason I use meals as an example is because, man, meals are easy because then your hands got something to do, right? You know, like if you're just standing there, hey, how are you? Fine. Fine. How's week? Good. But if you've got, you got food or you're cooking or something, that's easy. You know what? You can vibe with them and be like, yeah, this is great. And you saw a lot of Jesus' ministry was done over meals, the majority of it. The meals are easy. So have, them, have them over to, for dinner. Take them out to lunch, whatever. Be friendly. Isn't, you never thought that this would be the direct application of today's sermon. Be friendly. <laughs> Amen, let's pray. You know, like for real though, it's true. And do so... How did he say to do it? Be hospitable and do so without grumbling. Why? Because we grumble about this, don't we? And they had the same problem then. Same problem then. It's hilarious to me, isn't it? But their kids are going to mess up my house, right? And they're going to they're break my kids' toys. That's what hospitality means, bro. Have them over to your house. Who cares? love them well enough. Man, but when people come over, then I have more dishes. See, that's grumbling. That's grumbling. You're complaining. But man, if I invite them over, they're going to show up early and then they're going to leave late. You know, get over yourselves. 
this is what the Lord would call us to do. Stop it. Amen? That's, the end. That's another great place to just stop today's sermon. Stop it. Let's pray. Stop grumbling and, and do what the Lord has called us to do because it is the command of God and it has a purpose. Okay? Proximity has a purpose. Closeness, relationships have a purpose. And that is, hospitality has a purpose, okay? And that is that it matures you. It refines you. It is the furnace through, with God, through which God grows and matures his people. Here's, the, here's what I'm trying to say. You can't grow as a Christian. You can't mature as a Christian without hospitality, without proximity. It's not possible. It's not possible. And I mean, think, think about it with me for just a second. For just a second, think about it with me. Right? If you can go in your mind to the people who discipled you best over your life, I can just about guarantee you that it was not somebody on YouTube. Maybe you saw some great teachings. Maybe you watched some good sermons. But the relationships are really what discipled you and refined you. The proximity that you had. The the people who checked in on you and asked you how your soul was and, and taught you the scriptures over time. That was where you were discipled. Not, you know, Facebook preachers. Not just videos that you watch online. All that stuff's fine and good as long as you got a good teacher. Sure. But proximity is how you grow. Other Christians are one of the primary means of God refining you, of his maturing your faith. Why? Because they challenge you. Because they encourage you. And maybe most importantly, and the text deals with this specifically, because they sin against you. Christians, Christians must be around other Christians because they sin against one another. Amen? See, some of y'all are like, what the heck is this home dude saying? But it's true. Christians must be around other Christians because we're sinners. Because we sin against one another. Christianity is not a solo religion. You need one another. You need one another. Over the last eight years here in our church, I have been blessed with some amazing and deep friendships that I will carry for the rest of my days. Please, Lord. (laughs) And they have refined and challenged me and grown me and matured me because iron sharpens iron. And the process of iron sharpening is not pleasant. You ever watch somebody sharpen iron? Sparks, heat, pain, discomfort. They got to wear giant goggles in order to do it. And if iron is sharpening iron, the whole point is that they're, they're knocking off the jagged and broken pieces. And that's a painful thing to deal with. Yes and amen. Proximity, proximity must happen for us to be matured. It must. But pastor, nobody ever invites me over. I am playing the world's tiniest violin for you right now. Invite them, right? Nobody ever takes me to, to, my, to their house. You be the first one to make the move. You see, relationships are a two-way street, right, church? It's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. Both people can do all kinds of things. But pastor, my house isn't big enough. Listen, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness in one-room tents, and they made it work. We can make this work too. 
We can, we can figure this kind of stuff out. But I can't afford that much in groceries. Tater tot casserole. Google it, okay? Just, you're welcome. Tater tot casserole, baby. My, my wife bought a book. Specific, when we started gearing up to do more hospitality stuff, my wife bought a book, $20 soups, hot dog. And look, we will hook you up with recipes if you're looking. $20 soups that feed like 20 people. That is the way to go, man. That's the way to go. Get creative. That feed a crowd and, and figure out how to do it. You have to do this. Church, you have to do this. If you want to mature as a Christian, you have to do this. It's not optional. Because if you don't have time with your covenant brothers and sisters, you won't have time to love them. You won't have opportunity to love them in the truth, and you won't mature. Why? Because you won't be giving one another the chance to sin against each other and forgive each other. See what I'm talking about? You must give opportunity to sin against each other and forgive each other. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. He says it explicitly. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, go spend more time with one another so that when you sin against one another, you can forgive or cover one another's sins and grow in love. Amen! That's what we're called to do. You want to grow in love and grow in Christian maturity and grow in discipleship and all those things? Be with your brothers and sisters and sin against each other. I'm not saying do that on purpose. You know, that last part, don't do that part on purpose, okay? But you will. <laughs> because, we, because we're humans and we sin. And then we forgive and we cover and we grow and we, we mature. And those who sin, who do the sinning against others, we repent, and we don't do that again. <laughs> because, we, oh, we sin. Oh, sorry. Oh, I, I realize that's a sin now. I'm going to remember that for the future, and the Lord's going to help me not sin. Amen. It refines and it grows all of us. You can't grow. You can't mature unless you've got controversy to go through. Right? There's a reason that, that Christian maturity is given us by Jesus as a picture of, of a refiner's fire burning away the imperfections in the gold, right? What, you thought that's comfy for gold to go through that? You thought that felt nice? Mmm, I love me a 1,200-degree furnace. Let's go. No, man, that hurts. It's hot. It burns away. It burns away the dross. Trials mature us because they are painful to go through. They are the fire that Jesus teaches about that burn away the dross within us, the sin within us. And you can only do that. Ready? You can only do that with folks that you're in covenant with. Okay? I'm going to say some stuff. Y'all strap in. Here we go. You can only do this with folks that you're in covenant with. Work friends are great. I'm, I'm not, and some of y'all got Christian work friends. Amen. That's awesome. But work friends come and go. The average person changes careers like three or four times in their life. That's just careers. That's not jobs. That's just careers. Your work friends come and go. They're not in covenant. School friends are great, but same difference. Eventually, you're going to graduate from school, and you're going to move on. And, and some of y'all are blessed to be in covenant with some of the people that you go to school with, and that's awesome. But I, I don't talk to anybody that I went to high school with. Like, nobody. Yeah, and some of y'all are like, yeah. And we all wrote best friends forever in our yearbooks, didn't we? <laughs> See, you know what I'm talking about? 
But see, covenant, covenant is different. See, because when you enter into covenantal church membership with other Christians, you're looking them in the eyeball and you're saying to them, no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. That's what covenant church membership means. That's why it's so important because that means no matter how bad I hurt you or how bad you hurt me, we're going to fight to work through this together. That's, that's the same thing about a marriage, right? If somebody got married and the vows said something like, well, as long as you stay skinny, I'll stay married. We would all say, pause the wedding. <laughs> Shut this thing down. It's not going to work. Well, as long as you got a sweet job, I'll stay married. Whoa, hold on. We would all immediately respond that way. Shut this bad boy down. It's not going to work. Church membership is the same way. It's a covenantal bonding between people. See, at our church, we're not interested in, in covenanting with one another because we like each other, right? That's not how that works. We're not, we're not trying to covenant with one another because we like each other. We're in covenant with one another because of what Jesus has done for us. That's what unites us. Not because we look the same we don't look around. <laughs> not because we are in the same phase of life, we are not look around. We're united because of what Jesus did for us, and that's the ground on which we stand. And that's the beautiful news of the gospel. And this is why covenant church membership matters. Okay, you strapped in? Church hoppers won't grow. They won't. They don't. They don't grow. They don't mature. Because when controversy arises, when drama starts, the church hopper hits the road, start looking for something that's comfortable. They won't grow. They won't mature. They maybe, maybe they were at that church for five years. They matured for five years. Do you get what I'm saying? Maybe they, were, maybe they were at that church for three years, they matured to three years, and then they went to another church, and they started the process over again. They got three years mature and then moved on to the next one. That's not how we grow. If we grow by relationships, right, which is what the Bible teaches, if we are refined by our relationships one with another, that means that when we make covenantal commitments to one another, we hold on. We hold on. And I have watched the Lord in the last eight years do some refining. <laughs> and it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. And this is what, me, what, what me, we must be committed to. We must endure the gift of refining, of the fire that God gives us inside of covenant church membership and trust what the Lord is doing. So, spend time with one another. Show hospitality to one another and don't complain about it. Don't grumble, in other words. Because you're going to rub one another the wrong way. You're going to. I am a guy who cannot stop talking sometimes. And as a result, I am sure I have rubbed many of you the wrong way at one point or another. That's why you all love me so much. There's a joke. <laughs> you got it. Thanks. But that's what the Lord has called us to do, to enter into covenant with one another because it will grow us and mature us.
This is how the church is refined. We get to practice covering one another's sins. We get to practice calling one another to repentance. We get to practice forgiving one another according to the body of truth that God has given us because this is how the kingdom of God is advanced and we do it in love that is built on the standard of truth that is God's word. Amen? Love that is motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love that is motivated by the fact that he laid down his life for us. He sacrificed for us. Therefore, we can wash some extra dishes. We can invite one another over. We can let them break our kid toys. We can forgive when we are wronged and sinned against. We can, we can do that because we have been forgiven and we can do it in love because Jesus first loved us. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. Let's pray.